Matthew 16, 18, and 19 is what we're going to look at this morning. But I'm going to back up the reading to chapter 16 and verse 13 to frame a little bit of the context. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And He said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And these are the verses we'll focus in on this morning. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. (coughs) Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we again come before You and we confess that these ancient words penned by Your servant Matthew, recorded from the lips of the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Peter, These are your words that are given to us by inspiration of God. And they are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And they are to equip the man of God for every good work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip us. Teach us. Give us hearts that are yielded to your word. Give us comfort and hope and confidence in this glorious promise that Christ gives us here this morning. I pray also for those who are not part of your true church. They've not yet anchored themselves to the confession that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray that even this morning that they would place themselves upon the foundation of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher, who arrogantly penned these words, I will show how just one Frenchman can destroy Christianity within 50 years. And so Voltaire took up his pen, he dipped it into the ink of unbelief, and wrote against God. Was Voltaire successful in his quest to destroy Christianity? He was not. In fact, it was just 20 years after Voltaire's death 
that the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and began printing Bibles from his home. A kind of poetic justice against those who would seek to defy the true and living God and set themselves against Him and His purposes and His promise that His church will continue on world without end. We see such a promise in our text here in Matthew chapter 16. A promise that Jesus gives that He would build His church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. But we want to set something of the context here in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew loves to portray Jesus as the promised King. All throughout from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 18, Matthew, the author of this Gospel, portrays Jesus as the promised Messiah or Christ King. And within this section of Matthew, Jesus is on His way to the cross. And Matthew gives us a window into a conversation that Jesus is having with Peter and the disciples as the future leaders of His church. He wants to make sure they're clear, crystal clear on who He is. And so verse 13, it says, Now when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He, Jesus, was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus is in this area with His disciples of what we see called Caesarea Philippi. It's a city that was distinct from the usual New Testament district of Caesarea Philippi. And he's asking his, his disciples this question. And, and again, this area of Caesarea Philippi, it was in pagan, pagan territory. This area was devoted to the worship of the Greek deity Pan. Herod had also dedicated a temple to the worship of Caesar there. So you can imagine how popular this area was with the Jewish people. The city was some 25 miles from the Lake of Galilee and about 1,700 feet higher. Hence the need to stop along the way in chapter 15, verse 21. It lay near the source of the Jordan River. And so Jesus throws out this question in the midst of this very much Gentile, pagan area. He asks His disciples, what's the word on the street about Me? And notice the response. Some say that He's John the Baptist. Probably because of His holy character and His zeal for righteousness. Some say Elijah. Probably because they were expecting someone like Elijah to come before the Messiah would come. Others were saying, he must be like Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. Perhaps because the way in which Jesus lamented and wept for others, Jeremiah, notoriously the weeping prophet. But all these answers fell woefully short. None of them are correct. And so Jesus asked in verse 15, look at the text, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
There's all these different opinions about Jesus, but Jesus pointedly asks His disciples, Who do you, plural, say that I am? And so Simon Peter, as he often functions as the spokesman for the group, he pipes up and he exclaims, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. The Cairo, the initials for Christ. The anointed one, the anointed king of Israel, the promised Messiah, the one who God's people had been waiting for for millennium, waiting for Him to come. So Peter, in this amazing affirmation of faith and belief about Jesus, says, you are that promised king. The Son, the promised Son of David, the one of whom Psalm 2 speaks, You are a Son. Today I have begotten you. This is an amazing declaration that Peter makes. Verse 17, before Peter gets too prideful about his getting an A on Jesus' exam, Jesus reminds him in verse 17, and He said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Johnson, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus pronounces a blessing on Peter, a blessing because he is able to affirm this very important truth about who Jesus is. And also, notice He says, how Peter was able to make this affirmation. He says, because you're such a brilliant guy, Peter, you came to this great conclusion. Because you're smarter than the others. Because you've not believed the press about me. No, Jesus believes in sovereign grace. He believes that God the Almighty had revealed this to Peter. That God had opened the eyes of Peter so that he could see Jesus for who he really is. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter... And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, if you're familiar with church history and religious debates, you'll be aware that there's a large religious organization based in Europe, also known as the Roman Catholic Church, that hangs a whole lot on this verse. A whole lot. They believe that this, based upon this verse, that the Bishop of Rome today, known as Pope Francis, has the keys of the kingdom given to him. He is the head of the Church of Christ on earth. And the logic, or the supposed logic, goes something like this. Jesus built the church upon Peter... Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Therefore, every bishop of Rome after Peter is the head of the church. The Pope today 
is the Bishop of Rome, therefore the Pope today is the head of the church. So that's the logic. Well, let me shoot some holes in that with a 12 gauge. First of all, it is doubtful that Jesus is saying that he was building the church upon Peter. More on that in a little bit. But also, even if you just read through the book of Acts, would you conclude that Peter was the head of the church? Whenever there's a debate within the early church, do they all bow down to Pope Peter and say, Peter, speak to us uh, on this issue, decide the debate for us. No, that's actually not what we see taking place. Whenever there's even a doctrinal dispute within the church, we might even conclude that James was the head of the church, but he wasn't. There's a church council that's convened in Acts chapter 15, and matters are decided that uh, uh, in relationship to the church. There's no evidence that Peter is the head of the early church. Clearly, he was one of the leaders amongst the apostles. There's no doubt about that, but there's no evidence that Peter was indeed the head of the early church. It's also doubtful that Peter was even ever the bishop of Rome. In fact, have you read the book of Romans? Paul writes a letter to the churches in Rome. In fact, there's an entire chapter, chapter 16, where the Apostle Paul is greeting all those in Rome. And wouldn't you know, Peter's not even mentioned. He doesn't say, make sure you say hello to Peter, the head of the church in Rome. He's not even there. And even if Peter were to be considered the first pope, And even if we were to grant that he was the leader of the church in Rome, why should we grant that every successive bishop of Rome is then the head of the church? I mean, do we do the same for the churches that the Apostle Paul planted? Do we say every successive church leader is is somehow an apostle? No. The logic doesn't follow. Also, In case you were wondering, none of the early bishops of Rome considered themselves to be the head of the church. In fact, it wasn't even until the Council of Trent in 1545 that Roman Catholicism began hanging so much of their interpretation of apostolic succession upon this verse as a proof text. If you look at church fathers, church teachers before that time, many of them believed that the foundation upon which the church is built, as we're going to see in a minute here, that rock upon which the church is built is not Peter, but is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's a fairly novel interpretation in the history of the church. But, in case you're still not convinced... We might ask ourselves, what did Peter himself think? I mean, after all, he wrote several letters in the New Testament. Does he say, I am the head of the church, you need to listen to me? I am the rock upon which Jesus said the church is built upon me? Well, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8. through If we were to ask ourselves, Peter, who is the rock? And coming to Him, Peter says, coming to Jesus as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is a choice and pre- is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, again, speaking of Jesus, a stone of stumbling, and here we are, and a rock, a petra, same word used in Matthew 16, 18, a rock of offense. And so if we were to ask ourselves, Peter, who's the rock? I think we'd resoundingly, Peter would resoundingly say, it's Jesus. Not only that, in case you're still not convinced, the only person in the entire New Testament is referred to as a rock is Jesus Himself, unless this passage was one of them. The only person in the whole of the Bible outside the New Testament spoken of as a rock is God Himself. And so, what is Jesus talking about here? Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of the living God, is indeed, the confe- is indeed that which upon Christ will build His church. You probably are familiar with this, but in 1618 when it says, You are Peter, Peter's name does mean rock, but it's, it's a different word that's translated rock in the following part of the sentence. You are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. And Petros is commonly used in the Greek language not to refer to a giant rock, but a small pebble. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying here is a grand boulder has come out of you, a small pebble of a man, Peter. This grand boulder of this confession of faith is that upon which I am going to build my church. And this is, this is vitally important for us to be clear about the church. And so, for the remainder of our time this morning, that was all introduction, clearing some of the rubble. For the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to look at four important truths related to the church so that you would see the church as Christ's invincible institution and that you would receive great comfort. So, four truths about the church for your comfort. The first is that Christ is the builder of the church. Did you catch that in verse 18? I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now we first need to be clear about what the church is. You might think, well Matt, you, you picked this text this morning because we just, we just renovated this church. Well, sort of, not really. Because as you know, it's the brick and the mortar is not the church. The early church met in houses. This is a church building that we can be thankful for, that God has provided for us. But the building itself is not the church, despite the way in which we commonly use that in the English language. When you trace out the word church throughout the Scriptures, the church is the gathering of God's people. It's the gathering of God's people, as we're going to see, who have been built upon this foundational confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is the gathering of God's people. And so here, Jesus makes this statement that I will 
build my church. Christ is the builder. He is the architect. He is the designer. He is the executioner of this plan to build His church. This tells us something about what God is doing on planet earth today. Tells us something about God's priorities because indeed, Jesus and the Scriptures never give a promise for any particular local church to continue on in perpetuity. And so Jesus' statement here must be related to the church universal, God's people collectively, the collective gathering of God's people Jesus will build. This is also not referring to any parachurch ministry. Parachurch ministries, ministries that come alongside the local church to help with the work of the ministry. There's no promise for any parachurch ministry to continue. There's no promise for any particular country or nation to continue on into perpetuity. There is no promise that the United States of America, this great republic, will continue on. There is no promise that any particular political party will continue on. But there is this promise here that Christ will build His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This helps us to understand God's priorities. Indeed, I would suggest to you that God is more concerned what's going on with this little group of people today than He is, dare I even say, in the Pentagon or in the White House or in the United Nations. Because the church is the center of God's operation plan on planet Earth. So how is Christ presented as the builder of the church in the New Testament? Well, we see that He is the one who calls people into His church according to Romans chapter 1 verse 6. Jesus is the one who gives spiritual life to the members of His church in John chapter 5 and verse 21 where Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Christ is the one who releases members of His church from the debt of their sins, when He says in Revelation 1.5, to Him who loves us and has released us from our sins by His blood. Christ is the one who ensures eternal life to the members of His church. John 10.28 Jesus says, I will give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. Christ ensures the redemption plan that was set in motion in eternity past in relationship to God the Father's eternal plan and the Son's execution of that plan. Listen to John 6, 37-39. 
Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. That all that the Father has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So my friends, Christ is the builder of the church. And Christ will continue to build His church no matter what the opposition is. There has been times in which the church of Christ seemed to be a dimly lit smoldering wick. And one might have looked on and wondered, will the church survive this? But indeed, Christ's promise is true. The church will survive. There was times during the medieval period in which, in which uh, there was attempts by persecution to squash the church and to squash the saving message of Jesus Christ. But the church survived. During the time of the early Reformation in England, when a woman ascended to the throne of England by the name of Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary. She sought to squash any vestige of the Protestant Reformation in England. She had executed over 300 church leaders and pastors. In fact, two of those church leaders, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were taken to the stakes to be burned alive. And there's that famous statement where the one says, Hugh Latimer says to Ridley, he says, Mr. Ridley, play the man today, for today we will light such a candle in England that will never be burned out. Indeed, those two church leaders were executed. But the church survived. And the church even grew in the midst of persecution. It was Chairman Mao of the Chinese Communist Party who said that he had stripped every vestige of Christianity from China in the 60s. And estimates of the church in China, Christians in China, there was numbers roughly around one million people in that great land. Today, some estimate that there's 150 million Bible-believing Christians in that great land. Christ will build His church. He will call out a people for His name. He will be praised by them. They will build their lives upon the foundation of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. No matter what any tyrannical dictator seeks to snuff out and oppose, Christ's church will continue on. Even into eternity. The church is built by Jesus Christ. And can I also say the church is built not only by Jesus, but also by the means that Jesus uses. 
by the means that Jesus chooses to use. In other words, tragically today, so much of the evangelical church has been swept up with an undercurrent of, of what is called the church growth movement by large, big-name churches and church leaders saddle back in Shallow Creek and, and all this, and this is how you build the church. And you need to put aside the preaching of God's Word and, and, and all that. That's not going to attract unbelievers. And this is how you grow the church through marketing principles and all these business principles. And can I suggest to you there's many different ways in which you can grow the first church of tares, as one preacher put it. But there are certain means by which you grow the true church through the gospel, through the preaching of God's word, through prayer through human instrumentality of reaching out to your neighbor, through the public ministry of the Word, through us getting down on our knees and praying for our neighbors, our loved ones. Christ, open their eyes! That's how He builds the church. So my friend, are you committed to what Christ is building here on earth? Are you ready to devote yourselves to the building which Christ Himself is building? Are you concerned more about other institutions than the one institution that Christ promised to build? Not that we shouldn't be concerned about other institutions, but our highest devotion our highest commitment ought to be that to which our Savior is doing on planet earth, namely through His church. But not only is Christ the builder of the church, He is the owner of the church. Notice this personal, possessive pronoun, going back to 7th grade grammar, I will build my church. My church. He's the one who owns it. It's His church. Now, we've all owned some things that were major flops. Have you ever purchased a car that was a lemon? <laughs> Winds up breaking down on you in the first couple weeks of trying to drive it. Did you ever purchase a house that you found out there was all kinds of problems with it? And certainly the church itself is a church that Christ owns that has her own problems. But nonetheless, He owns it and He's the one building it. And that should inform our view of the church then should inform our love for the church. I mean, imagine if you were working on some kind of project and you had going on in your garage and, and you wanted to show this to me and I looked at it and said, well, that's a piece of junk. You'd be insulted. You're like, I've been working on this for five years. Well, when we disdain the church, we disdain 
the owner and the builder of the church. The church is imperfect to be sure. She's not a finished product, but she is Christ's church. She, he owns the church. Listen to Acts 20.28. 20, the Apostle Paul, he gathers together the elders of Ephesus and he charges them. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I mean, could you imagine the lump in the throat of all those elders where, where the Apostle Paul looks at them eyeball to eyeball and he says, you care for those people because they have been bought by the blood of Jesus. He owns them and he purchased them with his own death, burial, and resurrection. I don't put lump in any pastor's throat. Jesus Christ is the proprietor, the possessor, the owner of the church. And that is actually what guarantees the success of the church. Again, not necessarily any particular local church, but the church triumphant, the church militant, the church universal, composing of all those blood-bought people of God. And this needs to be clear. And we need to understand who is the owner of the church. Because the owner of the church is the head of the church. There's a professor at the Master's Seminary who would sometimes be asked, how's your church doing? And he would always say, whose church? Oh, not my church. That's Jesus' church. He's trying to impress upon the students the reality that Jesus is the one who owns the church. Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. Because that then informs everything that Jesus is the one who where He has spoken in His Word, He calls the shots in the church. He determines and dictates what we are to believe. He determines and dictates how we are to live. He determines and dictates what we are to do when we gather. God's plan on planet earth centers upon His church. He is the owner. He is the builder. It's one thing to take care of someone else's child. It's another thing to take care of your own child. I think that's why it's a lot easier to change your own child's diaper than some other diaper. Why? Because you have such tender love and affection for that child, you're even willing to clean them up after they've done their business. Well, Christ loves His bride. He loves His church. He bought His church with His own blood. And the church all should be, should be the object of our love. The church is sometimes referred to as the bride of Christ. His precious bride who He loves, He bought, He died for. The church is sometimes called the flock in which the shepherd tenderly leads and cares for. The church is sometimes called a family in which Christ cares for and takes care of. The church is sometimes called a body in which Christ Himself 
is the head of, who leads and directs and guides and exercises authority over. And again, this again, as, as we, if you were here for the adult Sunday school this morning, this is important, this brings clarity. The sphere of authority in which the church exists is one in which Christ is over. And He has delegated authority to His church leaders, His elders. And so He's the one who calls the shots. And so we subject ourselves as God's people to Christ. He is the authority. He is the owner of the church. He's the builder of the church. Thirdly, He is the insurance of the church. Notice verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then notice this threat to the church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades. That's an interesting phrase. What is meant? Well, gates are normally something that defends and protects and keeps behind. Notice Hades here. The gates of Hades. Uh, Some people take this to mean it's speaking about hell, the place where people go under punishment when they're outside of Christ. I, I don't think that's what this is talking about here. I think Hades is the idea that it is commonly in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. It's the realm of the dead. It's the dead. It's, in other words, the gates of death will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, listen to a couple different usages of this term Hades in regards to death. Acts chapter 2 and verse 27 when the Apostle Peter is preaching, he's talking about Jesus' resurrection and how the grave could not hold Him. It says, because you will not abandon, he's quoting from Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In other words, uh, Peter quoting David is talking about the grave or death as Hades. We see the same thing uh, from the lips of Jesus from the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.18, where Jesus says, I was dead, and behold, I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is death. It's the realm of the dead. And so when Jesus here says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, He's saying that not even death itself can thwart my purposes and destroy my church. And of course, this gets to the end of the story of Matthew, that that Matthew is recording, right? Because by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's the tomb that's empty. Death has been conquered. The grave is empty. The angel says, go tell my 
Go tell the disciples that He is not here. He is risen from the dead. And then the promise that everyone who is united to Jesus will also be resurrected. That the grave cannot hold the people of Jesus down. It's like that old spiritual, ain't no grave going to hold this body down. Ain't no grave going to hold this body down. Meet me, meet me, Jesus. Meet me in the air. Ain't no grave going to hold the church of Jesus Christ down. This is what we hear from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 when he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all those from the fear of death from lifelong slavery, that Jesus conquered the grave, and everyone who is united to Him by faith will rise with Jesus so that the church of Jesus Christ will one day be triumphant because the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. So that execution, martyrdom, Cults, isms, perversions of the gospel, even all the threats of Satan himself as he would even seek to sift Peter as wheat will not prevail against Jesus Christ and His might, the church will rise triumphant. Jesus Himself said in John 8.51, Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps My word, he will never see death. That's an amazing statement. He who keeps My word will never see death. Does that mean that Christians don't die? No. It means they don't see the full brunt of death because upon their body lying in the grave, their soul is immediately ushered into the presence of Jesus and it awaits the resurrection when Jesus comes back, when that body in the grave will not be held down, but will rise with Jesus as He comes back. And the church of Jesus Christ will be gathered together at the feet of King Jesus. Friend, this should give you great comfort. We live in an age, day to day, in which many of those things that were familiar to us are being unhinged, upheaved, and undone. There are forces at play that want to destroy this country and its foundations. And it may well happen, but it will not triumph over the church of Jesus Christ. We may before before long be meeting in the underground 
And I don't mean in the basement of this building. <laughs> but the promise, the insurance of Christ's promise will remain true. It will remain steadfast. Christ will be true to His promise. Because He is the builder. He is the owner. He is the insurance. He guarantees it through His own death and resurrection. But not only is He the builder, the owner, the insurance, He is the foundation of the church. We see this with the statement, upon this rock I will build my church. As I mentioned earlier, I believe that's referring to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so by deduction, it is Jesus Himself and the confession that goes with it that He is indeed who He claimed to be. That is the foundation of the church. That is the message upon which the church is built. That is the foundational message upon which she must remain. And when she departs from that message, she ceases to be the church. Christ is the foundation of the church. And then with that in verse 19 is this amazing statement. He says, I will give to you the keys, and that you by the way is plural, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The keys. The keys of the kingdom. What are keys used for? They're used to unlock doors, right? Keys are used as being a gateway that tells you who's in and who's out. If there's no door, if there's no, dare I say, border, then you don't know what is what. You don't know where the church begins and where the church ends. And so the keys are given to the leaders of the church, in this instance, the, specifically the apostles, and by implication, the future leaders of the church, to make sure that those who are in the church are those who have built them their lives upon the foundation that Jesus is King. He is the Christ. That the church here is given the authority to say who's in and who's out. Now, I know that hurts some people's feelings. We all want to be considered in, right? Nobody wants to be considered an outsider. But without this, if there's no borders, then everybody's in. Or nobody's in. Which is it? If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know, a lot, you know that this isn't the only time that these, this binding and loosing and keys language is found. It's in, over in Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15 and following. He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. 
And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The the language here of this binding and loosing is the idea of whatever, whatever judgment you make, as long as it's consistent with what I'm saying here, it's affirming what's already been pronounced in heaven or denying what's already been pronounced in heaven. It's loosing what's already been pronounced in heaven or it's binding what's been pronounced in heaven. And here in this instance, in the context of what we would normally call church discipline, when a person is saying with their lips, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is King, but with their life they're utterly denying Him, Jesus gives a process for the church to make a decision that this person actually, while they may say Jesus is King, He's not their King. And they're actually on the outside. Because those who are part of Christ's church are those who confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so because Jesus is the foundation of the church, those who depart from that foundational reality depart from the church. And this is why The Protestant reformers, when they were seeking to uphold the marks of the true church, they said that there was three marks of the true church, many of them in the Belgic Confession, several other confessions. That there's the preaching of the Word, which would be the foundation of Christ, preaching the true gospel, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The ordinances of baptism and communion, Baptism marking the entry point into the church and communion, the ongoing fellowship within the church. And then church discipline. Who remains in the church and who's out of the church? One of the founders of the SBC, John L. Dagg, wrote, when church discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. It's a sobering statement. Because Christ has given this authority of the foundation of the church, being Christ Himself and those who live under the kingship of Christ, as that which marks those who are truly part of the church. And so, this should again be a comfort to us as believers in the Lord Jesus. That Christ is the builder. Christ is the owner. Christ is the insurance plan of the church. And Christ Himself is the foundation of the church. And it is a foundational message which God has given to the church to proclaim Christ. And those who reject Him... They're outside the church. Those who affirm Him and yield to Him as their King, they're part of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why when we interview people for membership at Sovereign Grace Chapel, we ask that question, if you were to die today, 
and stand before God and God asks you why He should let you into heaven, how would you respond? Because if your answer is, well, I'm a pretty good person, or anything I, then the foundation is not on Christ, but upon yourself. But if your affirmation is that Jesus died for me, He paid the price for my sin, He is my King, He is my Christ, then we're just acknowledging what has already been reckoned in heaven. You're part of the church. Come on in. But, again, if the affirmation is no, I get into heaven based upon something in myself, then you're not in the church. And so, my friend, let me close this morning by asking, my, asking you the question, are you in Christ's church? And I'm not saying are you in this building, but have you anchored your life to the Lord Jesus Christ where He is your hope to get into heaven? Are you anchored to Jesus in that He is your Christ? He is your King. <clears throat> he is the one you have subjected your life to. Because if He is, then you are part of that one institution which even the gates of Hades will not prevail against her. But if you are not, then Jesus is the one who is your judge. He is not your Savior. He is the one who will judge you. And you will stand before Him and give an account before Him. As He says early on in Matthew chapter 7, He says, where the many say to Him, Lord, Lord, did I not do such and such in Your name? And then it's Jesus Himself who says, Depart from Me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Friend, don't let that be you. Hide yourself into Jesus. Trust in Him alone for your eternal salvation. And then you can know with certainty you're part of His church that He's building. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, We thank You for Jesus and this glorious thing He's building on earth. Has been building for thousands of years. We call it the church. The bride, the body, the building. Indeed, she has been assaulted by Satan. She has been torn by heresies. She has been infiltrated and undermined by worldly ideologies, but inasmuch as she anchors herself to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, she is your church. And you will make sure she gets to glory. And Lord, we rest in that promise. And we want to yield our hearts and our lives to Christ as King. Even as we embark on a new chapter in the history of Sovereign Grace Chapel, we want to be clear at the outset. Jesus is the head here. We yield to Him. 
So, Lord, give us submissive hearts to King Jesus, in whose name we 